Are you on Patreon yet? If you love this podcast and want to support it in the long term, Patreon is the way to go. I spend hours per episode researching guests, writing out questions, recording interviews, posting on Patreon to engage with our patrons about all of those, cleaning up the audio, and putting together all of the promotional materials. Even with the help of volunteers, this is an enormous task that takes up a ton of my time, and right now I'm not paid for it. For just $3 a month, you can support this show while also gaining access to our exclusive detection dog training video help calls, which happen once a month, our learning club calls, which are currently quarterly, but I'm hoping to move to monthly, and a lot more. You can join the fun over at patreon.com slash canineconservationists or using the link in our show notes. You also may want to share this with anyone else you know who is interested in getting involved in the field of conservation detection dogs, because this is hands down the lowest cost way to get as much mentoring and assistance and joining a community of other professional and aspiring conservation detection dog handlers. And um, you're going to really enjoy it. See you there. Welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us each week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data for researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I have the joy of talking to Sarah Streming and Aaron Jones about what we owe our working dogs and what they owe us. Sarah Streming is a teacher, trainer, speaker, dog sports competitor, and podcaster. She is the owner-operator of The Cognitive Canine, an online education and consulting source for all things dog behavior. Erin is a PhD candidate at the University of Canterbury, New Zealand Center for Human-Animal Studies in Christchurch. Her main fo- research focuses on how deep-seated human exceptionalism influences the discourse around dogs and their behavior, influencing our expectations, and how this impacts the way we think about canine consent. Erin is a CDBC and ADT with the IABC. She's a CPDTKA and is an accredited behavior consultant with the Companion Animals New Zealand. She also runs Merit Dog Project. The main concept is to provide a science-based platform to educate people who live with and work with dogs. In addition, Erin works for the IABC peer-reviewed journal and social media team and is the president of the APDT New Zealand. Originally from Canada, Erin now lives full-time in New Zealand with her dog Juno and her husband Mike. I'm so excited to get to this interview, but first it's time for our research highlight. This week, we're going to highlight the paper entitled Buzzing with Possibilities, Training and Olfactory Generalization in Conservation Detection Dogs for an Endangered Stonefly Species. You can find this paper at the Wiley Online Library in Aquatic Conservation, um, and it was written by Nicholas Rudder and others. So I thought this paper was really interesting because it highlights the idea that conservation detection dogs are trained to locate specific biological targets, including cryptic and low-density plant and animal species, but they haven't really been used much in detecting endangered invertebrates. This is a pilot study that assessed the ability of four volunteer conservation detection dog handler teams to detect the endangered alpine stonefly. So the dogs were trained, um, and the dog all teams were able to identify 100% of the targets when presented in container lineup searches with no false alerts. And in the field, all available dog handler teams, which is three out of the four, not quite sure what happened to the fourth, alerted to the presence of T. alpina individuals, including individuals that were not seen by experienced visual surveyors. One of the other things that was really interesting about this paper is that three of the four conservation detection dogs also spontaneously alerted to a closely related species, which is the sterling stonefly as opposed to the alpine sternfly. 
in an initial container search, which at first to me was concerning because it was like, oh my gosh, oh no, the dogs have generalized. But the researchers were actually excited about this because, and they write that the preliminary results demonstrate that volunteer dog handler teams can be trained to detect T. alpina in situ, and in addition, conservation detection dogs may be able to perform olfactory, olfactory generalization effectively. Um, in other words, they are able to, <laughs> this study shows that if it's appropriate, you may be able to train your dog on a specific, easily accessible species. And then the dog may be able to generalize to finding a closely related, rare, cryptic species as well or instead. Super cool stuff. Um, and with that, let's get to the interview with Sarah and Aaron. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. For um, anyone who hasn't heard your voices yet, why don't we start with Sarah doing a quick introduction of yourself and then Aaron. Hi, I'm Sarah Streming. Thanks so much for having me, Kayla. I have a podcast called Cog Dog Radio, and I'm happy to be over here on Canine Conservationist today. And I'm Erin Jones. And again, thank you, Kayla, for having me on today. I'm really excited. I have a Merit Dog Project. It's not a podcast, but you can check it out. I do lots of blog posts and um, other educational material there. Yeah, great. Well, so today I asked both of you to come on for this kind of weird philosophical question that keeps knocking around in my brain of what do we owe to our working dogs and how do we balance welfare and the mission and, you know, at what point is it okay to make compromises on one or the other? So why don't we just start out with either of you can just jump in with your initial response to what it, like, how, how do you even start thinking about the answer of what do we owe our dogs? Well, <laughs> um, it's funny because I recently saw somebody on social media kind of losing their mind at at a creator who had the audacity to say that maybe you should pay attention to whether your dog likes what you're doing when you're petting them. Like maybe you should get consent to pet your dog. And the mm -hmm. person really lost it on this creator. Like I feed the dog. I take the dog to the vet. I walk it, whatever. And I'm not going to ask it if I can pet it too. And I was like, wow, what a really interesting, first of all, an interesting thing to be irritated about. And then <laughs> second of all, what an interesting um, kind of place that person was coming from, because in my little corner of the world, um, I don't see that type of feeling, I guess, coming across that often. So for me, when it comes to what, what do we owe them? I think that um, we certainly owe them anything that would fall under the category of welfare. So we are in charge of them. We chose to have them. Nobody held a gun to your head and said, you get a dog now. And so it is up to us, I think, to make sure that all of their basic needs are met. And those needs include things like safety um, those needs include things like the allowance to express species or even breed typical behaviors. And 
of course, what I'm always talking about is something I call the four steps to behavioral wellness. So I also believe that we owe them appropriate exercise, appropriate enrichment, appropriate nutrition. And then the fourth step is communication. And really, that's appropriate training. That's I don't think that training is a is a choice. I think it's a welfare concern. And so for me, at the kind of basic bottom line, that's what we owe them. We're going to get into more interesting, nuanced conversations, I think, about what we owe them. But that's that's kind of the basics for me. Yeah. Erin, yeah. what do you have to add? Yeah. I mean, along those lines, um, I think, I mean, Sarah mentioned training and I think that's actually a really big one for me because I think, you know, we're bringing dogs into a very human centric environment. Um, like Sarah said, you know, they didn't ask to be brought into our worlds. (laughs) Um, and we, and they are dependent on us for a lot of things. Um, and I think it's important that we don't um, overstep that boundary and we teach them, first of all, the skills to coexist with humans successfully and navigate this very human-centric environment, which is difficult because it's, you know, it, we're viewing it from a, a very human lens. And, um, and sometimes that impacts our dogs in in um, in ways that affect their well-being. So I think that we need to think more about things like respecting their choices, respecting when they say yes or no, and teaching them information that they need to, you know, to like I said, to navigate this environment and um, live successfully in a in a very human-centered society. So for me, I think you know, training skills is is a, definitely a, a big one. Yeah, yeah, I think those are all really good points. And what I love about how we've already started this discussion is we're just talking about kind of the basics of dog ownership in general. And I think, you know, we'll, we'll drill into how it may look different or not for a working dog. Um, But then, you know, the flip side of this question that also was knocking around in my brain is, do our dogs owe us anything, which Sarah, your example of the woman on social media really brings that home. I think a lot of people feel really entitled to having a certain relationship with their dog because they, (laughs) you know, I feed and clothe you. I put the roof over your head. Um, And yeah, so I, I, you know, yeah. Do our dogs owe us anything? And then again, we'll bring this back to talking about working dogs because in theory, the only reason you have a working dog is that your dog is doing something for you. So I think that, um, well, first of all, my dogs are not working dogs, but they are, they are sport dogs. And so they do stuff for me. I don't kid myself. I do think that the dog sports that I do and the way that I do them enhances both of our lives and not only mine, but I also, it's important to me that my dog's lives would still be good if they didn't do sports. And so on that kind of same note, or maybe along the same lines, I don't actually think they owe me sports at all. I don't actually think they owe me anything. Um, I think that they're here. I chose to bring them into my life, not the other way around. And I don't think they owe me anything. It's important to me that they enjoy the games that we play together. And if they don't, we don't do them. Um, 
And I was raised in the sport of competitive obedience. And I was very much kind of taught very early on that they do owe us a lot. And that, um, in fact, I remember an instructor, this was probably uh, 20 plus years ago, talking about you're not asking that much of them. And so, of course, you get to dole out a correction if they're not doing it correctly, because you're not asking that much. And so coming from that kind of mindset and having a major, major shift in my own mind about it, I now am at a place where I don't think they owe us anything. I think it's up to us to take care of them and be responsible for them. And part of that does often mean giving them a way to channel their highly intelligent minds and athletic bodies into doing something. You know, I would no more ask a, you know, gosh, I'm going to get in trouble if I say any breeds. So I'm just going to say I would no more ask a dog that was, you know, heavier and, you know, just heavier by nature, by who he is, and maybe not physically, you know, maybe the sport of dog agility would be hard for him. And therefore he maybe wasn't enjoying it. I wouldn't ask that dog to do agility any more than I would ask my border collies to do nothing. It's not fair for me to do either of those things. It's not fair for me to ask this dog who's physically, in my opinion, not fit to do this game to do agility. And it's also not fair for me to ask my border collies to just be pets. So Mm. because I choose to have working type dogs, it is actually, I actually, I owe them some kind of job for them to do. They don't owe me that work, but I, I owe it to them. Yeah. No, I think those are really good points. I know it's something, you know, we were talking right before we started recording that I'm currently on COVID isolation and it has been a really interesting challenge to figure out how to, you know, meet their needs appropriately in a hotel room when I am, I am able to, the hotel is near a place that I can go for um, an off-leash walk and there's no one there. Um, I'm really, really lucky with that, but you know, they're still not getting nearly as much as normal. So, and, and, and I think people, at least, at least in the the circles that we travel in or the circles I travel in, and I assume the two of you travel in, that's much more well-recognized, the needing to meet the needs than it is what you're saying as far as maybe the times where it's not appropriate to ask a dog to do a job or play a game. Um, so Aaron, what do you, what do you have to say? Uh, well, I have companion dogs. I, I don't have sport dogs or working dogs. Um, and I don't think that they owe me, I don't think they owe me anything, um, at all. If my dog were to, and I get, I, I don't have specific breeds, Um, my dogs have all been mixed breeds my entire life. Um, and they've all had, you know, different interests in life. And, and I think what I owe them is that, you know, I can provide outlets for the things that they enjoy doing to provide them with an enriching life. And, and for some dogs, yes, agility or having a job could be, um, could be a great outlet for some dogs. Absolutely. Um, but then I always also wonder, and I, and I don't mean this in any sort of disrespectful way, but then, you know, when it comes to competing or something like that, I feel like, is that 
possibly just for me, right? Like, is that just for the human experience of the sport? Um, what is my dog getting out of that experience that they couldn't do just doing it for fun? Um, but that's just a, a random kind of thought I had because I'm not involved in the sport world at all. So maybe there there is um, more to it than than I see from as an outsider. But yeah, for, for me, my dogs don't owe me a thing at all. <laughs> I do think, Erin, that the competing part is 100% for the person. I don't think that's for dogs at all. No. So for me, when we get into some of these questions, it does come up of like, what, do the, what does the dog have to sacrifice for me to get to compete? And how can I minimize those sacrifices that they have to make? So uh, in October this year, I drove, I don't even know how many miles it is from Washington to Tennessee, but it's far. And, <laughs> and um, I did that to compete in a national event with one of my dogs. And what that means is that all three of my dogs got put in the van and we drove across this country. The reason that we drove is because putting that particular dog on an airplane does cross an ethical boundary for me with him in particular. And I don't think that's true of all dogs at all, but it would not be fair of me to ask him to do that. But was it fair of me to ask him to do a road trip that long is a question that is a valid question. And so I did you know, I did my best to make it okay for all of them. We took a long break in the middle. We um, made sure that we got enough, enough. <laughs> I don't know what that means, that we got um, opportunities for off-leash exercise and that they were still fed an appropriate diet. And I mean, basically, I go out of my way to make it okay for them. But would they be happier staying at home and hiking in the woods every day? Yes. I'm going to say yes, they would. So that is where these questions come in is, you know, did my dog and I have a good time? I think he had a fantastic time at the national. I think he was really excited and had a fantastic day every day. And he was excited to be there. And he was like at the, pulling me into the arena. And I mean, he wanted to do it. But if I were able to sit him down and be like, okay, so we're going to go do this thing but this is how many hours in the car it's going to take. What do you think about that? He probably <laughs> would have said, can't we just do agility? Can't we just compete locally? Because that's a lot of time in the car, mom. You know, like that's mm -hmm. true. That's totally reality. So I think that in dog sports, I think when people um, say that competing's for their dogs or that their dogs suffer without competing, which I heard a lot of in the last few years, because we've, had a lot of canceled events um, mm -hmm. for good reason. And, I, you know, I heard a lot of people being like, I think my dog is really suffering. Like, I'm not sure how to fill in the gaps here. And my question is always, if your dog is suffering without competing, like what is the rest of your dog's life? What's going on? Um, because competing, I think we are kidding ourselves if we say it's for them. It's yeah. totally for us. Well, and I would wonder too, I haven't, Barley and I at most have done some fun matches for agility, um, but he would come home exhausted from those fun matches 
But I think a big part of it is that he's not yet at a place where he can fully rest and relax in the crate in between his runs. Um, and honestly, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I'm the sort of trainer who ever is going to be able to get a dog like him to a place where he could fully relax at an agility trial. Um, so yes, he's exhausted, but I'm not sure it's like, uh, parts of it are certainly a fulfilling exhaustion. He does love the sport of agility and he does really enjoy getting out there and running around and, you know, he gets anything that results in him getting a ball on a rope. He's gonna, he's gonna like, um, which I think is also part of this ethical question, especially when we're dealing with dogs that, you know, fall into this category of high drive or ball crazy or whatever we want to call it. Um, but I'll, I'll finish my first thought first, which is just, you know, I, I wonder with, with competing in particular, how much of it is, yes, they're tired, but that's just because it was a really long day where they didn't get their mid afternoon nap or they're really truly fulfilled. Like they would be after a really long day of hiking. Yeah. I think that competing, um, in general, I'm going to say, they're exhausted from it because it is really mentally taxing, not, not really because it's fulfilling. And to me, again, that comes back to my job and what I owe them is to make sure that they are able to sleep and relax during the day at an event like that. And sometimes that means they're in my car with fans on them so that they're nowhere near the noise I think it's a rare dog that can actually just that can truly sleep when they can hear agility or see it. Um, yeah. I, I don't think that's just a training question, actually. And, yeah. you know, so in the case of this event that I drove across the country to, I paid money to be able to set my dogs up in a quiet stall by themselves so that they could sleep. So it's things like that that I think are important. Yeah. Erin, did you have anything to add on that before I? I well, I've been working direction? with, I mean, just along those lines, I've been working with a few behavior clients fairly recently. And, and uh, a lot of them are into things like Ralio and, and, um, and agility as well. Um, and I just feel like some of those dogs perhaps <laughs> don't want to live that life. And I wonder how many people get a dog with the expectation that they're going to then go on and compete and, and, do, you know, they already have a life set up for them or expectations set up for them before they even maybe even get the dog or when they first get the dog and they're still learning about their dog and their dog's personality and preferences and, and that kind of thing. So I always think like, sure, there's probably dogs that really enjoy that kind of activity. Absolutely. I know that there is, I've seen it. Um, but how many people actually get a dog and say, oh, I think my dog might actually really enjoy doing this activity or that activity um, as opposed to the other way around. Um, so that's always a, and that's just from, I think because those are the clients that I tend to get are the, <laughs> are the dogs that are really uh, struggling in those environments. And I just think, why, why, <laughs> why are you taking them there then? <laughs> in my Maybe they prefer to go for a hike in the woods and just be that dog. <laughs> I know yeah. this was a hard conversation I had with my breeder when I was picking out Niffler um, because this is my job. And I, you know, I was like, I, I can't just have three washout dogs that live with me 
and my one or two working dogs. Um, so we did have some really long discussions and I was lucky enough that my breeder was really great about it. And she knew that if it really started looking like Neil Filler was not going to exceed, succeed in this line of work, there was a good chance I was going to return him. Um, or we were going to work together on a rehome. Um, and that was not something I was excited about. I, I really, really didn't want to bring home this puppy and raise him and fall in love with him and then have him not look, not work out for this line of work. But again, I, I can't just keep keeping dogs that won't work for my line of work. And it was a little different when I was bringing Barley home because I wasn't in this line of work yet. And I hoped to do agility and send work and all these different sports, but I was pretty open to whatever activities he may fall in love with. Um, and that is very different now from where I'm at. And I think that is where I think a lot of people who aren't really, really deep into the dog world, and even some people who are really deep into the dog world are really uncomfortable with discussions of rehoming when it's not like a safety issue um, or something like that. People are maybe okay with the idea of rehoming if there's serious intra-household dog-dog aggression. But, um, you know, so I, I mean, I'm really glad I, it didn't have to come to that because I'm not excited. I would not have been excited for the internet backlash that would have um, <laughs> happened had I needed to give Niffler to a new home. Um, but, I think it would yeah. be so beneficial if more people actually had those conversations with whoever they were getting the dog from up front and had that conversation with themselves. I mean, Kayla, because you having that conversation with yourself of this dog needs to do this work or he can't be just an extra, especially He's a border collie. He's got to do something. So, and if he can't do the thing that you need him to do, he needs to go somewhere else and do something else. And yeah. I wish more people were comfortable with that. I do see a lot of dogs doing dog sports who, um, for one reason or another, I think would probably prefer not to. Now for every dog I see like that, honestly, I see 10 more that are really the, whose lives are enhanced and who are really enjoying themselves. I'm really pro dog sports for sure. Mm -hmm. But I do wish the attitudes about, um, you know, maybe then my home is not the right home. Like I'm going to be really honest with you. I am picky about the sports I like and want to do. And I am not going to do just whatever the dog thinks is better than this. So like if Rhea, Rhea is my, uh, Icelandic sheepdog puppy and she's looking like she really likes agility, which is what I would like her to do. But if she didn't like agility, she wouldn't do agility. And cause I'm not interested in asking her to, if she doesn't like it. And also I'm probably not going to go take up barn hunt because it does not interest me. Um, so I would fill her life in whatever other way that I could because she's really cute and you'd pry her from, you know, my cold dead hands. So, um, but I think it's really important for us all to acknowledge, you know, what happens to this dog if it doesn't actually fit the life that I would like it to fit. Right. Yeah. Do then do I force it to fit in that life? Do I build another life for it or does it go have a life somewhere else? Yeah. Right. 
Well, and one of the things that I suspect, uh, and I think I'm, I'm hearing from both of you, and I know I've heard from clients in the past as well, is there is a little bit of this trade-off of, you know, potentially agility or being a conservation dog materially benefits the dog as far as, you know, those couple hours a week of really intensive physical and mental work is really good for the dog. And then, yes, there is a little bit of a trade-off in, uh, of then we go on a road trip to go to do the competition that the human really wants to do. And, you know, I could even think, you know, kind of, I, I will try to bring this back to working dogs a little bit more. Um, you know, I think both of my dogs really love the job that we do, but they probably would prefer to only ever work during certain seasons and to maybe only go out for two or three hours a day. Um, and then, you know, especially for example, this summer with Niffler, we were on a wind farm in Nebraska and it was very, very hot. Um, he did not mind our early mornings. We were often getting up at four or four thirty in the morning to get to the field site right at dawn. Um, but they were really, really long days and he was sleeping in the car in between searches and blah, blah, blah. But we were often out of the house for 10 to 14 hours a day. Um, and he was probably doing, I know I was doing about 30 miles a day on foot and he was probably doing close to that. Um, I was going to say more, but I actually had a bunch of human only searches that he got to sleep during. So it was probably similar between the two of us. The point being, <clears throat> Even for a job like a conservation detection dog, where the dog is going out and they're doing nose work and they're alone in the woods, and it's like, as far as dog welfare fair and a working dog job, I have a hard time imagining something that is quote unquote better for a dog than the lifestyle that's provided through conservation detection. It's still really long hours. It's still really hot days. And at what point... I don't think safety should be the bar that we're aiming for as far as when it's fair to ask a dog to keep working. Um, so I'm going to stop talking I there and see if anyone wants to jump in. I, I do. This is a little bit off what you're saying, but I think it's really important to, I was just thinking of this while you were talking about how when we do have these goals and these jobs um, for our dogs, that it's really building the the bond that we have with them it's building our relationship it also means increasing training it means better communication it means more skills which in turn means better well-being for our dogs so as much as we don't want to try to you know fit a square peg into a round hole and you know ask our dogs to do things that perhaps isn't in their best interest or um, is against what their preference would be. I think that there is some merit to these, to asking our dogs to do these things because it's going to increase that relationship because it's a two-way relationship. I mean, yeah, we want to think about our dog's well-being maybe over our own while well, I, <laughs> I tend to. Um, but, you know, I think that it's important that it it works together. Um, so as much as I don't necessarily think my dog owes me anything, I think that um, doing things with my dog, um, and, and for us, it's, we do a lot of hiking and stuff like that. It's not really sport, but, um, you know, I think that that helps to build the bond and then creates a better life. I, Kayla, when you were in Nebraska in the blazing sun, which is not my best, um, element to be in I was like number one how are her dogs still working number two how is she alive <laughs> I was 
was like, this sounds like my literal hell on earth, <laughs> what you were doing. Um, and yeah, it's, it's so important to think about, like, it's, it's so important to think, okay, on the whole, this enhances my dog's life. Yeah. And then there might be these little trade-offs yeah. here and there that I'm going to have to make. Right. And I think as long as we're thinking like that, then we're probably on the right track. We're probably ahead of the game. When I start to think about, um, when I start to think about other things like, uh, you know, an avalanche, uh, search and rescue team, the dog, like, you know, jumping from a helicopter onto the mountain. <laughs> I mean, I start to think, okay, helicopter. All right. That's not something that I think I could prepare my current group of dogs for, even if you asked me to, because I don't think it's yeah. within their, their wheelhouse. Right. So if, Felix can tolerate being driven across the country and then competing and then being driven back. That's fantastic. But if we had to jump out of a helicopter to compete, I'm going to say that that's probably a no for him as well as, you know, like I mentioned, getting on an airplane's a no for him. Mm -hmm. And so then I think it gets into the topic of really considering the individual. Um, which can be so hard because you, number one, you don't know, like if you get them as a puppy, you don't really know. Um, you can do your best as far as selection and as far as who, where you get the dog from. And Kayla, I think you've podcasted on this recently, like how to get a dog that's going to do this for you. Um, but you can set yourself up the best. And, you know, in my case of dog agility, you can, you can do your best to set yourself up, but you still may get a dog who as an individual, the things that you're asking of them are not fair. Whereas it might be fair for the next dog. I know plenty of dogs who fly on airplanes regularly to compete really without suffering. And then I know plenty of dogs who I know fly on airplanes. And then I also know that dog personally, and I don't understand how they're flying and being okay. And the answer is they're probably kind of not okay, but you know, they get there and they give them enough recovery time and then they compete. So I think the individual really, really has to be considered. Yeah, I think that's a really good point to to kind of underline. You know, I think your example of a search and rescue dog is is a really good one to think about. And obviously that's not my wheelhouse. It's not it's not anyone's wheelhouse in this group. But you know, if there's if there's a missing child and you know that your dog might be unhappy on the helicopter, but it can get out and it can get the job done. Is it fair to ask that dog to do that? And, you know, it's something I think about in the conservation dog realm because the stakes are lower. You know, we're not dealing with a missing child who might be hours away from or currently in like true peril. You know, if if my dog misses an invasive plant or a bat that was hit by a wind turbine, it's you know, it's not materially going to um change the biodiversity <laughs> um crisis that our planet is currently facing. Um 
So I think that's always a really interesting question as well is, you know, I might be willing to ask my dogs. um, I wouldn't fly my dogs to Africa just so they could accompany me for a vacation. I might fly my dogs to Africa for a project. um, If it were a long enough project that it felt worth it to go through the quarantine periods and, you know, it's, it's something that I don't think I would ever feel great about, but you know, what, what is the training I can do? What drugs can I explore to get them across the ocean to get the job done? And is, is the job worth it? And again, if I've got two dogs, I think Barley is the one that I feel much more confident about flying with right now. I mean, partially because he's done it before and he's also just generally a little bit more of an affable guy than Niffler. Um, so I don't know. These are all just things that are swirling around in my head. That wasn't a question. <laughs> I think we always have to look at what the risk is for the dog as well. Like the risk and agility is pretty, lo- you know, low. <laughs> the risk in conservation, I assume, is pretty low also. But jumping out of a helicopter or, you know, it being in avalanche territory seems very risky, obviously. Um, and is it fair for us to put dogs into those situations, even if it means you know, the stakes are higher because there's a missing child or, you know, people trapped in the snow or whatever the the situation might be. Um, And I don't know that I I have the answer for that. I mean, I know my opinion on that. I don't have an answer. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So anyway, just, you know, it it comes in this ethics of, you know, whose life matters the most. (laughs) Yeah, which can get so tricky, right? I mean, that's such a tricky thing to even even begin to to talk about is whose life is worth more um but the other really interesting thing i think because you said risk right like some you we all need to be thinking about risk assessment and what is worth it for us as individuals and what and then we're making that choice for our own dogs Um, I know people who actually think the sport of dog agility is too risky because people, because dogs get hurt doing it. Um, I don't personally think dogs get hurt more now than they used to. I think we have better veterinary resources now and we have social media now. So it looks like they get hurt more than they used to. (laughs) Um, but dogs get hurt doing agility. Dogs also get hurt off-leash hiking. Um, I, to me, one of the biggest things that I do for my dog's welfare is off-leash exercise. And yet the thing that I am most often attacked for is that not doing agility, but doing off-leash exercise, because it is in so many people's minds in the United States, at least, just too risky um, for for your dog, for maybe other people's dogs. I mean, for wildlife, for there are a lot of reasons that people, um, especially especially where we where I live, think that it is kind of not a not fair thing to do. And yet, I think that it's an essential need for dogs. I don't think we have any right to not provide off-leash exercise to them. So we, wow, we can get really deep into a conversation there. Like that's not even work. That's me trying to provide a basic need for my dog. And yet 
there's a long list of people on the internet who would have me know that it's unacceptable for me to promote it. It's unacceptable for me to do it. And it's way too risky for everybody involved. Um, and so, you know, one of the, the, one of the things that I, you know, like to say is that sitting on my couch watching Netflix, I've never gotten hurt doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been hurt. I've injured myself doing dog agility <laughs> and hiking. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think there's like, I don't think there's a doctor that would say that Netflix is safer than hiking. Right. So, no. because we have to think about long-term wellness and the fact that anything worth doing probably has inherent risk. I, I do think when it comes to working dogs, thinking about the risk that you're putting them through is something that should be strongly considered. But I think in the case of, um, you know, if I, at, at risk of going too deeply into some areas that none of us have any experience in, um, I think in the case of, you know, maybe a search and rescue type dog, that is maybe deployed for a natural disaster, that could be really dangerous, right, for that dog. And that dog might have to do really scary stuff like be airlifted down, like be, you know, lowered into rubble by a pulley system. Like, I mean, there are all kinds of things that these dogs go through. Um, But when you look at the dog's life as a whole, and you see how much its life is enhanced by doing that work. Because again, I think the dogs that are good at that work are not going to be good at being on your couch. There's, <laughs> there's a definitely a give and take there that, um, you know, I've got a friend who does, who is FEMA certified search and rescue dogs that are, you know, FEMA certified search and rescue dogs are not like that common. There's not that many of them. So you will, they'll be deployed wherever, right? So they were deployed to 9-11. They'll, they'll be deployed when there's an earthquake, et cetera, et cetera. These are like really high caliber German short hair pointers that if she expected them to just be pets would be maniacs. They would be unhappy. And so would she living with them. Right? So when I look at their life on the whole, I think that those that the risks that they go through are are worth it. And I'm also saying, you know, they go through something major to get to the rubble, but once they're in the rubble, they're working and they're working. They they look, you know, I'm I'm making I'm making a judgment about their emotional state obviously that I that isn't really fair for me to do, but for all the observation that I can make, they're having the time of their life in that rubble. And so looking at how much the dog's life is enhanced on the whole versus how much risk is involved, I think is the, that's the cost benefit analysis that I'm personally going to make. Whereas I do think a lot of people more make the, you know, how much does this enhance my life versus theirs Uh cost benefit analysis. And that's where I think it gets into some tricky waters that I don't like. Yeah. Definitely. I totally agree with you. Um, I, I also though wonder like, are those dogs, could their lives be enhanced in other ways that are less, that are safer, uh, that are safer, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like, could they have like the same enjoyment in life 
doing different things, you know, like, I don't know. Like hunting, like hunting birds, which is what they were actually yeah. made for. Yes, I probably what any of them would prefer to do, yeah. I think. I, don't, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that we're always having to, to analyze situations and make decisions for our dogs because they are dependent on us to do that. Um, I, I'm all for consent um, in lots of situations, but there are a lot of situations that we can't actually ask our dogs for consent and there's things that we just need to, to do. Um, but we have to, I think, look at every situation and say, is this the best thing that I could do for my dog in this particular situation? Um, and I don't think that we do that enough from the dog's point of view. I think we do that much more frequently from our own point of view like well, this is going to benefit me in some way even with companion dogs i mean they all have a purpose to us in some way whether it's companionship or you know agility or working for us or service to us or or there's something they they enhance our lives in many many ways but i think we owe it to them to take a moment to think about each of those situations individually from their point of view and, and assess whether it's in their best interest. I think that's really important. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we've got so many different things that are all pulling on the ethics of a given situation, you know, when we've got, uh, and again, we're picking on the earthquake or natural disaster because it's, it's so salient, but you know, the, the risk and reward, of that situation has so many different layers to it. And I know, again, in the conservation dog field, it might not necessarily be as acute. In most cases, um, there are some cases where the dogs are being deployed to track down poachers or something and hopefully catch them before they escape. But that's not the situation that I work in. Um, So, yeah. And I know one of the things that I think about a lot is whether, especially with a really high drive dog, how much I can like, this sounds kind of weird and patronizing. I'm not totally sure if I believe what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Like if I believe the consent that they offer and I believe the emotions that they appear to display at the concept of going to work. um, And, you know, I think for me as, as like the handler or the owner, the trainer continuing to pay attention to not just how they react right away in the morning when I ask them if they want to go to work and, you know, they shoot out of bed and Niffler this, this last summer had a habit of not, he was too excited to go to work to eat breakfast. Um, so he often would eat his breakfast in the afternoon when we got home, you know, he clearly was excited to go at the beginning of the day, but then continuing to monitor throughout the day. And okay, if he's really excited every day at 4am, but by 2pm every single day, he's really starting to drag or struggle like how do you weigh that and then you know the other layer that i know i've personally seen with both of my dogs is both of my dogs are willing to work through more pain than i'm comfortable with asking them to actually work through um and it's really challenging to actually figure out again like how how and when to pull them from work when they're both high drive enough and they love the work enough that barley when he he was bitten by a brown recluse this summer and he wanted to go to work on three legs. <laughs> you know, he, he, he was non-weight bearing um, on, on the one leg and was still crying and yodeling and trying to get himself to go to work and was happily, um, before we figured out what was going on and we thought it was just a torn toenail or something, he did a couple searches where he was kind of gimpy. And 
You know, that's not something I think one of the things that us in the working dog field sometimes do is we make excuses that we say the dog wants to work, the dog loves to work, the dog will work through pain, the dog will work through this, the dog wants to go back to work the next day, so we're fine. And I'm not sure that that or safety alone is enough of a barrier to cross. Yeah, and I think, you know, we design them like that too. Like we're talking about highly, highly specialized breeds that are going to work on three legs, right? So then we have to be the voice of reason for them because they're, they don't have a voice of reason programmed in their head, right? And Erin, I wanted to ask mm-hmm. you, just from the pet sector kind of perspective, I also feel like this comes up a lot that people kind of expect their dogs to like go to the barbecue, tolerate the child petting them, um, you know, go sit outside the coffee shop, even though maybe that's not what they want to do. Go to the dog park. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about some of that? Because I think this really extends beyond um, kind of beyond anything (laughs) that, that we're talking about. It just goes so deep. Yes, it really does, actually. And I hear that all the time, especially the coffee shop thing. <laughs> and, and like around here in New Zealand, like everybody wants to take their dog to the pub. Um, <laughs> and there's so many dogs that just it's not ideal for them. But I think we have, first of all, we as a society, we have expectations. We, we expect our dogs to want to do this and behave in this particular way. And when they don't, then we're like, oh, we need to fix them. There's something wrong with them. Um, Even if it's dog-specific behavior that they're exhibiting. Um, I also think people come often with preconceived notions because of the expectations they have based on their previous dogs or previous experience with other people's dogs. Um, And then all of a sudden, this new puppy is different than their old dog, surprise, surprise, um, and maybe isn't... I like a dog park dog or a cafe dog or is reactive or, you know, and, and we continuously breed dogs that, you know, for their looks rather than uh, for all sorts of reasons, but not often enough for their, you know, their personality and their temperament. Um, and, and there's, I think there's a, I don't know. I, I feel like there's a trend or a rise in behavior. <sighs> I don't, I hate using the word problems because I don't think that's the case at all. But I think that um, our lifestyles, slash breeding, slash our expectations dictate how our dogs are behaving and the way that we're be, they're behaving is the way that we behave towards them. And it becomes this vicious cycle of either, oh, I'm just not going to take my dog for a walk. I'm not going to take them out at all. Um, then that's a welfare problem. Or, you know, they're exposing them in ways that they shouldn't or expecting them to um, you know, behave in particular ways in particular environments that is pushing them beyond their personal boundaries. So when you're talking about, you know, the individual um, and how important it is to understand their preferences, I think we really need to consider this way more than we do. Um and, and then tailor the, you know, our, not just our expectations, but maybe the, what we, what our goals are, you know, what, what are our goals for our dogs to succeed and think about their success rather than what we want <laughs> in the end. <laughs>
Hey everyone, just popping into this episode with an update on our Patreon. We still have the $3 a month doggy detector level, which allows you to ask questions for me and the guests to answer each episode, but now also lets you join our monthly training video analysis calls. These calls are going to be recorded, of course, and we'll also publish the video afterwards for everyone to view and ask questions about prior to the call to ensure that all time zones kind of participates fully. So we'll basically publish the video we're going to analyze so that you can ask questions and view it and prepare ahead of time. Then we'll have the call where we talk about it. We can have beverages. It'll be a good time. And then all of that is going to be shared later. So you can participate before, during, and after. Again, just for three bucks a month. Now, at the $10 a month sensational scientist level, you get everything that we got before at the $3 level, plus you get to submit videos of your training sessions for those calls. So this is perfect for the aspiring canine conservationist, and your target odor doesn't really matter here as long as you do communicate what it is so we can think intelligently about your goals. Um, so this is going to be great for nosework competitors and other canine handlers as well, and we're really striving to make these video calls super kind and supportive and helpful, so um, it's going to be a nice safe place on the internet to get good feedback back on your training sessions because I know how much of a struggle that can be, especially in the set work world. So then finally, the canine conservationist patrons get everything from those other two tiers, plus a private 30-minute training call with me to go over whatever you're running into with your dog. That tier is just 25 bucks a month, and that's cheaper than booking my time at journeydogtraining.com for behavior modification, and that's just because I love you and I love my patrons. That's definitely something to check out. You can join that Patreon over at patreon.com slash canineconservationists or at the link at canineconservationists.org. It's like a tiny link up in the top bar. And then we also drop that link into our show notes. So if you're listening on your podcast app, you should be able to find it just right from there. So thank you guys so much. And let's get back to the episode. And I think weighing that with, you know, especially like Kayla coming from where, where you're coming from, if your dog is your actual job, then it becomes a real battle in your mind to ask them, you know, are you going to go to work today? Are you okay to go to work today? When there's not a whole lot of choice involved for you. And, um, you know, it's a real, I don't think there's like an answer. It's just a real thing to contend with. I think before you go that deep. So one of the things that I do with my sport dog clients is, we teach the dogs how to give the owner essentially a signal that says, yes, I'm ready to go. Yes, I'm ready to do this. And it is really baffling to people when I say, and if the dog is unable to give you that signal, um, the most insidious thing you can do is to make them do it anyway and to ask them to do it anyway. And it's actually better to not ask at all than to ask and then mm -hmm. override their answer. Um, this is really, really hard for people to wrap their head around. I'm not sure why, but I have a lot of thoughts on that where we don't have time. But um, when I say to people, you know, that means that when you walk in the ring, if you're going to ask them, then you have to be willing to accept their answer which means yep. that if you can't accept their answer, so like Kayla, let's say you can't accept the answer no today because you've got, I don't know, a hundred boats to search or whatever, and you you can't search them on your own. That's different <laughs> yeah. from the bat 
project because you can visually, it just is a slog and takes a lot longer for you to (laughs) visually locate the bats. But like, then your best bet is actually not to ask and to just ask the dog to go, to ask the dog to begin, right? And so um, we just, all of these things are just important to be thinking about, important to be considering. And and then consider, yeah, what is what is your personal boundary and your personal line? Mm-hmm. And are you okay to ask the dog to work through some heat when you know that you're not going to allow them to be dangerously overheated? Or is it going to be okay for you if the dog says, "I think it's too hot today for me to for me to do this"? Right. So um, it's interesting. And then I think you know that's why we have dogs that will work on three legs. it's why when you need them to work, you should get dogs that are going to work no matter what. But then, um, you know, what I like to, how I like to describe these dogs, which does not make me popular is, um, I, rather than saying they're hardworking and high drive, I say they're easy to exploit. Yeah. And so you need to be very careful and make sure that, exploitation is not what you're doing. Yeah. I see that with companion dogs as well. You know, I think people really struggle with this whole idea of consent because if you think about like human consent, you're thinking about things like informed consent, which requires some type of contract that Mm -hmm. our dogs can't provide. Um, And you're, I I love that you said, you know, if, if we can't, accept a no, then we shouldn't ask because otherwise we're just going to break that relationship down. There's going to be no trust there at all because we're asking and then just overriding their answer. Um, And that's totally unfair. And so I do try to provide as much choice as I can to my dog. But if there's a situation where I can't, um, I think that it's really important that we just, you know, we don't ask, we just do. Um, but I think that people really struggle with the idea of consent in a lot of ways too, because they understand body language or they even maybe they don't understand body language completely or they, they know it, but they don't, they can't, they have trouble applying it in real life situations. So even though they know what to look for, they just don't see it or they're just not paying attention or they just, I don't know. They just don't, (laughs) I don't know why, honestly, I don't know. There's probably a variety of reasons why people ignore those more subtle signals. Um, but they do. And, and so I think that we're, and, um, you know, even not to throw my husband under the bus or anything, but he like a big part of my own research is about dog consent. And I'm a huge advocate for, especially when we're handling dogs that were asking them if they say no, you know, checking in with them frequently and, and not bothering them when they're sleeping or eating. Oh, just, you know, basic stuff. In my opinion, it's very basic stuff (laughs) and respectful. Um, But even he struggles, even though he knows, like I, I talk about it all the time, um, he still struggles because I think we have this ingrained, deep-seated idea that we can just pet the dog whenever we want, even, especially when they're our own dog, you know, like, they're ours, we own them, so. Yeah, they belong to us, yeah. Exactly, yeah, so I think it's, I think there's a lot of, um, 
reasons why it's a struggle for people, like you said, but, um, but people really do struggle with that. And, and I just don't think that we consider it enough. And I think we need to just get it out there more and more and more so that people are thinking about it. Because the more you do those things, like the more you, you know, do a pause and ask for consent or wait for your dog to ask you for attention or, you know, those types of things, the more you think about it, the more you do it, the better you get at it. And then it becomes like second nature. But I think it's challenging in the beginning for people. Yeah. And it can take a really long time. You know, I think I've spoken previously, at least on the Canine Conversations podcast, if not on this one, about when I first got Barley, it probably took two years for him to really actually consent to petting. And he wasn't scared of people. He's never he's never been a nervous dog. He's just always been a dog who would much rather play fetch. Mm-hmm. Um, and to this day, with most people who try to pet him, he does. He'll kind of duck away and go grab something and shove it in their hand instead. Um, which is a, he's a, he's a lovely teacher um, <laughs> of what he would rather have instead. But you know, I mean, it, it was it was shocking to me how long it took of you know, doing like pat, pat, pause to actually get Mm -hmm. to the point where he now will actually lean into or consent to petting um, and now actively asks for it as well. Um, And a a huge part of that as well for him, which um, is a separate component that most pet people probably don't have to deal with, but it was also being incredibly clear and consistent with him about when fetch was on the table because it took... I think also making it incredibly clear to him that fetch is never on the table when we are inside the living room for him to actually stop asking for that or stop kind of being like, yeah, 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 no, 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 we're, we're playing now. Um, and circling back actually to something that Sarah said, um, you know, about, yeah, it's, it's really, it's really challenging when, you know, I do, I am paid to show up and perform a job. Um, it's a little bit higher stakes than scratching on an agility trial or cutting a coffee date short because my dog isn't happy at the coffee shop, which both are still really painful things. I don't want to minimize that. Um, having had to do both now, um, but you know, it was a big, that was a huge part of the reason that I got a second dog was so that I could say, hey, you know, Niffler tore a toenail this morning. It's not a huge deal. He'll be fine to work in a couple days, but he shouldn't work today. I'm just going to grab Barley and Barley and I are going to go to work instead. Um, And that, I think one of the big things that I've been thinking about a lot throughout this entire conversation is just how we need to get not just serious about risk management and uh, mitigation, but also get creative with it. And if part of the way that you manage your dog's welfare in the field is by having two dogs, you know, like that, that doesn't sound like a risk mitigation measure, but it is. Um, It allows me to be able to give dogs longer breaks or give them uh, during the day or a longer weekend where they just have more days that they don't work entirely. I think having more than one (laughs) is a good compromise for a lot of sport people too. Um, a lot of sport people, it's just way too much pressure to only have one dog competing and, um, they might do things that they regret or that are not fair to the dog if they only have the one. Um, 
I know that that's not, you know, a feasible answer for everybody, but we can always be thinking about, you know, okay, how big are my needs and can one dog actually fulfill all of that for me? And in the sport world, we kind of famously have too many dogs, like per household. <laughs> That's kind of how sport people operate. Um, and so I think you, you need to go, okay, how, what are my dog needs? And then how many dogs are going to fulfill that for me? And then also, the, you know, the thing that needs to really be thought about is then how many dogs needs can I then meet and do those numbers add up? Do those numbers equal each other? Um, because too often the answer is not, but then I know, you know, I know a lot of people who I really respect in the sport world who, when their dogs retire, they kind of have retirement homes that they go to. That's not really a thing for me as a, as an individual, but I respect it if it is a thing for other people as an individual, uh, as individuals. But I think, you know, I think that's huge in the working dog world. Like how many handlers of working dogs will place their retired dogs in pet homes. I think it happens. I think it's, you know, and then you have, you have working dog programs where the dogs aren't owned at all. They are owned by the program and, you know, then they might retire into maybe some homes within the program, but maybe, you know, and like I know a TSA dog that retired and was adopted by his handler and, um, it's just, there's just so many moving parts, so many factors. And I think that the bottom line of what we owe them is that we owe them, we owe meeting their needs as an individual. And for some dogs, that means giving them work to do because they're not designed to not have it. And that's where we do get into, you know, these muddy waters. There are people who don't think there should be any kind of working dog at all. Um, and if that's true, like, let's just entertain that idea for a second. Then the way that we produce dogs needs to change drastically. There's a large selection of dogs that now don't have a place on earth. If working dogs or sport dogs are not a thing anymore. Um, and I, you know, it's a whole other conversation. I'm a firm believer in the fact that we need more dogs that fill the pet work role better <laughs> than <laughs> because my dogs are not good pets. Like they need, they need too much to be a normal person's dog, to be honest, to be a normal family pet dog. It's just not what they're made to be. And we too much, especially in the sport world, people are like, Oh no, no, my dogs are pets. My dogs are pets first and there. And then you go to their house and you're like, right, but you're not normal. Like this is an okay type of pet for you, <laughs> but you are not normal <laughs> and you're not helping, you know, the droves of people who then are like, well, you know, so-and-so says border collies are perfectly wonderful pet dogs. So I'll get one. And, or, you know, even worse. I mean, <laughs> again, I'm just not going to say breeds. I'm just going to say the breed that I live with <laughs> because I was about <laughs> to say a breed that's really growing in popularity that really shouldn't be, but <laughs> and I'm just going to not get, not get in trouble. Um, but, you know, I think saying, you know, that they don't owe us work 
is important. I agree. They don't, mm -hmm. but maybe we owe it to them to give them the work. And I think that that's true a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I know both of my dogs have been handed back to me by multiple dog sitters and almost all of my dog sitters are professional trainers. Cause those are the only friends I have. Um, <laughs> and both of my dogs have been returned to me with like a dazed look and like, they're just like shoving the leash at me being like, I don't know how you do it. <laughs> like, and, and I think they're perfectly wonderful. Uh, like, and I'm like, oh, we're, we're living in a hotel right now. My 15 month old is asleep. He's been on two 20 minute walks today he's perfection on earth the easiest border collie in the world and he's just not <laughs> you know um yeah i think i think that's a really important point aaron did you have anything else to um actually both of you but um because sarah just talked last um anything else you wanted to bring up or circle back to as we're winding down here no i just wanted to I just I find it funny, not funny. I enjoy listening to your conversations about your working dogs because I have my dog who's <laughs> the opposite. <laughs> She's just like, cool, we can sleep in and I just like to eat, you know, those are her like favorite things to do. Um, <laughs> but I, again, that, that comes back. To, I really, I, I like Sarah that you said, you know, we need better pet dog breeding programs <laughs> um you know and we need to consider that more because there are there are trends that we've seen over the years of people getting particular breeds and um that aren't necessarily suitable for that environment and um perhaps yeah we do owe it to our especially working dog breeds to have a job even if it's more fun even if it's um, you know, like my dog enjoys scent work, so I'm going to learn about doing some scent work or that type of thing. It, I think they need those outlets. So, yeah. 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 And I think, you know, as we've circled around said a couple of times now, like so much of it is also just on the handler to think hard about risk mitigation and making sure that, you know, like life and limb aren't the only concerns. Obviously that is something we need to worry about, but then also kind of zooming out to think about larger welfare issues, um, kind of emotional safety for the dog. Um, and, you know, making sure that we're doing everything we can to, again, in, especially in the working dog world, maybe get the job done, but getting creative about how to get it done in a way that is really fair to ask the dog to do. Yeah, I think we we did a pretty good job hitting hitting a lot of uh, areas of a topic that is just gray. There's no black yeah. and white here. There's no because dogs are dogs are way too varied for there to be black and white answers for what's good and what's mm -hmm. not good, and the people who have them are just as varied. So, um. I think it's just a good thing to talk about. It's just a good thing to think yeah. about for your individual situation. And I don't think that there's right and wrong answers. Yeah. yeah. I think reasonable people can easily disagree. Um, like one last anecdote here. I've talked multiple times on this podcast about how I currently have a grant proposal to go out where hopefully Barley and Nifflin are going to be in Ecuador this coming fall doing um, research on big cat scat. Um, 
And I think so I've exotic, several- Kayla. That's the most exotic thing I've ever heard of. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was I was really trying to write a sexy grant. I'm really hoping that they agree with you. <laughs> Make um, sure it's a very exotic grant. It, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was like, we're as cool as it would be to go to Ecuador and study fungi. I think I'm gonna gonna pitch the jaguars, and uh, you know, if they if they don't want to fund the jaguars, they don't want to fund anything. Um, but. Um, you know, I've talked to several other handlers that I really um, look up to and respect in this field, um, who some of whom think I'm being overly concerned about some of the safety issues being in the Amazon, and others who say that, you know, they're, they're like, no, I don't, I don't think I'd be comfortable taking my dog to the Amazon. I think it's too far from a veterinarian. There are too many things that want to kill you down there. And I'm, <laughs> I'm somewhere in the middle on it. You know, it's I've, I've been totally obsessed lately with... Uh, all sorts of snake protection. And um, uh, yeah, I've been like emailing Ken Ramirez every couple months about his snake projects. And um, I, I, I'm in contact with a friend of mine who's, we're working on trying to create custom snake gators for my dogs that they can work in. You know, like we're doing everything we can to try to make sure it's something that feels safe. And I'm still like at any point, even if I get this grant, I'm, I still have to be ready to say, you know, this just, this isn't going to work. It's, it's too scary. It's too risky for my dogs. Cause I'm coming home with both of my dogs at the end of this. Um, and it's, you just like yeah, raised it, my heart rate. I'm now stressed for you. <laughs> no. Yeah. I know you can't take your dogs to New Zealand easily, but New Z- like nothing wants to kill you there. So exactly. <laughs> that's why that's an ideal place to be. I, I've been to New Zealand a couple of times, really enjoy it. <laughs> really think it's nice. <laughs> Nothing yeah. there wants to kill you. <laughs> I yeah. went to Australia once in the same trip and everything there wants to kill you. <laughs> so it's, it's a stark contrast. <laughs> it is. Yeah. I've, I've also been harassing all the conservation dog people in Australia because I'm like, if anyone knows how to deal with snakes. <laughs> because you obviously just want to be terrified. Yes. But yes, they, yeah. they would know. And most of, yeah, that's, that's a whole other conversation. But Yikes. Yeah. I think no wonder you wanted to have this talk because, wow, that's big. Yeah. 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 I've been having really, really serious self-talk conversations about, like, yeah, is this is this a fair thing? Like, I'm, I'm doing it for me. It's a prestigious grant. I, I want to go back to Ecuador. It's one of my favorite places on the face of the planet. But is it really fair and safe to bring my dogs to the Amazon? Um, I'm going to say it's not safe, (laughs) but that doesn't mean it's not fair. Yeah. And then, you know, we're just doing everything we can to get crazy about risk mitigation and doing our best. Um, and you know, again, of course, being willing to pull the plug if we get down there and it's just not the situation on the ground, isn't something we're comfortable with. So, all right. Well, (laughs) on that, on that rather intense, uh, cliffhanger note, um, Can both of you remind our listeners where they can find you online? We'll start with Erin. Yep. You can find me at MeritDogProject.com, also on Facebook and Twitter. Um, The handle is at MeritDog. And uh, you can find me at TheCognitiveCanine.com. I'm also TheCognitiveCanine on Facebook, uh, Cognitive underscore Canine on Instagram, and then I'm just my name on TikTok, which is at Sarah Strumming. And of course, listen to Cog Dog Radio. <laughs> of course. All right. Well, thank you both so much for coming on. This was a really, um, a really interesting conversation, and I it could have gone on longer, but uh, I think we did a good job of priming people's brains for it a little bit. Thanks, Kayla. Thank you.
Thank you so much for listening. As a quick recap, our overall points on what we owe our dogs and what we owe them is that the training and preparation matters. Um, The individual dog matters. You need to take a short-term and a long-term view of welfare and that the dog's enthusiasm and safety aren't enough for permission to work. You also need to be your dog's advocate. And again, thinking about the short and long-term view of welfare, safety alone is not enough. We also have to think about emotional comfort for the dogs. We also as handlers need to get serious and creative about risk management. And finally, remember, our dogs don't owe us work, but we might owe them the opportunity to work. Thanks again so much for listening. I hope you learned a lot and are feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and your skill set. You can find show notes, donate to canine conservationists, and join our Patreon at canineconservationists.org. Until next time.